Streets filled with rubble and destruction. The earthquake struck central Morocco shortly after 11 p.m. on Friday. On the 8th of September, a 6.8 magnitude earthquake in Morocco's Atlas Mountains killed more than 2,000 people and left thousands more homeless. So the quake struck late last night. It centered high in the mountains around the tourist destination of Marrakesh. Uh, the tremors brought down parts of historic buildings and homes and people just ran into the streets. Look at the parts of the old Medina in the nearby city of Marrakesh, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, were left badly damaged. In this episode, two months after the earthquake, we hear why Marrakesh and its Medina are so important to the Islamic world and why some researchers are worried that the expertise of the city's traditional artisans is being overlooked in the reconstruction. I'm Gemma Ware, and this is The Conversation Weekly, The World Explained by Experts. It was a tragic and traumatizing situation. I remember it was a Friday about 11pm. This is Noureddin Nashwan. He's a professor at the Mohammed V University in Rabat, and an expert in Morocco's rich cultural heritage. On that Friday night in early September, Nouradin had left his mother's apartment in Marrakesh to start the 20-minute journey back to his own home. I was riding my moped along a large boulevard with relatively little traffic. Everything seemed normal and I didn't feel anything unusual. Along the way, I started to see some passers-by acting strangely. People were running, then stopping. They seemed disorientated. To start with, he thought it was a fight or somebody had had something stolen, so he didn't slow down. But as he continued on his moped, he got to more residential neighbourhoods with hotels in them and saw people gathered in front of each building. And so he stopped. I asked what had happened and people told me that the city had been hit by an earthquake. I immediately called my mother, my wife and my brothers. But for nearly half an hour, there was no reception and I started to get more and more worried. I continued on my journey home. When I got there, I found my daughter asleep in a park next to my house, with my wife and my neighbours. Nouradine lives in the new part of Marrakesh, and there wasn't much damage in this part of town. So when his family and neighbours told him how strong the earthquake had felt, he initially thought they'd been exaggerating a bit. As he received more and more calls, though, it became clear that the earthquake had been felt as far as Casablanca and Rabat, and that the epicentre was only 20 kilometres from Marrakesh. An hour later, Noureddin went to his office in Marrakesh's old Medina, located in his father's old weaving workshop. It's a space where he and his brothers had grown up, and it was badly damaged, with lots of cracks in the walls and on the facade. It was an enormous shock. The situation was chaotic. All the streets were full of people, whole families. He went further into the alleyways of the Medina, climbing onto rubble, trying to find his way. But I got lost. I lost all sense of direction. The Medina which I knew had completely changed. This Medina with all its colours and smells, I didn't recognise it. It was devastated. It had become deadly and threatening. It was a terrible shock which traumatised me for many weeks. Half a world away, in Boston, Kalpana Jain, the senior religion and ethics editor for The Conversation in the US, woke the next morning to news of the devastating earthquake in Morocco. I heard this news and it was, I don't know, somehow it affected me. And I'll just say it, 
as someone who lives here in the US, I do relate to news from Global South and I see how it's being covered or what is being missed and the nuances that get missed. And this was a pretty tragic thing that happened. And I felt like we need to dig deeper into this story in some ways that doesn't just make it about, okay, X number of people killed, but how can we go deeper into this story? And tell me how you then came to work on this particular story, which ended up being about local artisans in Marrakesh and how they were being affected by the disaster. Yes. So, you know, I was reaching out to a lot of scholars who I had worked with earlier, art historians, people who work in the religion. And they suggested this scholar who worked exactly on this particular region, on Marrakesh, who had lived there, who had been there. And I called up the scholar who was also so heartbroken at that moment because these are familiar places where she's lived and worked and she can see the devastation that's happened there. And that's how we went into it. We batted around a little bit for a few ideas. And then it came down to really the artisans and what would happen to their livelihoods. So I said, that's a great story. Let's focus on that. And this scholar you found was Abby Stockstill. Can you introduce her for us? Abby Stockstill had been working in Marrakesh since 2014. And she was doing a research on the book on the development of Marrakesh as a medieval metropolis. So she knew a lot about the city. She's an assistant professor of art history at Southern Methodist University, which is in University Park, Texas in the United States. Thanks, Kalpana. It was actually Abby Stockstill who put us in touch with her friend and colleague, Noreddin Nashwan, the researcher who we heard from at the start of this episode. We're going to hear a bit more from him shortly. But before we do, I called up Abby to find out more about the history of Marrakesh and its old Medina. This is a subject she knows a lot about. In 2014, Abby moved to Marrakesh for a year to research the architectural legacy of the Almoravids, the medieval dynasty that founded the city in the 11th century. This dynasty was from this region in between the Atlas Mountains and the Sahara. And their economy was based around trade with West African kingdoms, places like Mali, for example, and Mauritania. And when they moved into the region where Marrakesh now is, they were trying to basically create a contact point between this sub-Saharan trade route and the Mediterranean basin. And... Marrakesh became this sort of new way station for them moving through that sort of pathway, that trajectory. The early sort of phases of Marrakesh, right, the way the city itself was established was pretty ad hoc, let's say. The Almoravids built a mosque complex, they built a palace that was built out of a stone, not really a palace, it's more of a fortress, right? Its intention was really about fortification. And then the rest of the city was sort of haphazard. There were tented structures because many of the communities that followed this dynasty were nomadic. It's not until the next dynasty, the Almohads, who are also indigenous to Morocco, but they come from the Atlas Mountains instead, It's not until they move in that we really start seeing the city being formalized in a way that we recognize today. Today, quite a bit of this medieval infrastructure from both the Almoravids and the Almohads remains in Marrakesh's Medina. This is because when Morocco was a French protectorate, the French administration who was ruling over Marrakesh wanted to preserve that medieval part of the city 
for their own academic study. At the end of the 19th century, France colonized parts of North Africa and the Middle East. The French invaded Morocco in 1907, and a few years later, in 1912, established a French protectorate which continued until Moroccan independence in 1956. The protectorate implemented new regulations aimed at preserving the city's architecture. They maintained the major public spaces, things like the Jemal Fna, the famous main square where everyone congregates even now, the Kutubiya Mosque and Minaret, that's the signature monument in Marrakesh's skyline. The minaret itself, when it was originally built, was one of the largest minarets ever to exist in the Islamic world. The urban planner that comes in to help them establish Marrakesh as a metropolis under the protectorate says that no new buildings can be built that are higher than a palm tree because that's going to preserve the medieval character of the city. And it all has to be built in local stone. It all has to be built using uh, the same historical techniques. And so even now, even in the new city, you'll see the same sort of red ochre color in all of the buildings because they're still using the local stone. So it may have art deco details, but the materials themselves are still really local and really tied to Marrakesh's history. Now, the mistake that the French make is thinking that Marrakesh is a, a prototype for all Islamic cities. They say it's got a mosque, it's got a main square, it's got a palace complex, and they create this whole theory of the Islamic city based off of Marrakesh. What they don't understand or what they forget is that actually most of the cities in the Levant, in Egypt, have classical origins. They grew out of Roman provinces, Roman settlements, and Marrakesh never did. Marrakesh was a city that really was founded and developed in the medieval period, founded and developed under an Islamic paradigm. And other cities didn't do that. So they take this model created at Marrakesh and try to apply it to other places, and it doesn't quite fit. So the French come in and really focus on preserving the Medina. Who were the people actually doing that work? The artisans, the craftspeople, they must have played an important role, right? Initially, their role was primarily archaeological excavation. So they formed the bulk of the archaeological teams that were excavating at places like the Kutubiya Mosque, the Agdal Gardens, any of the archaeological excavations that we have under the French protectorate. They're being led by French scholars, but the bulk of the labor is being done by these local craftsmen. Later on, by the time we get to like the 1940s, 1950s, those efforts are shifting towards restoration and reconstruction. And then those same craftspeople or their sons are being employed to do the restoration. So the wood carving to replace parts of the carved stucco that have fallen off or deteriorated. And they're doing things like the tile work, the zalij tile work, which is a kind of geometric tiling that is distinctly North African. What about now? What about today? How have those craftspeople continued that tradition? In addition to the restoration of historical sites, many of them have been employed in decorating a lot of the hotels and riyads that have sprung up around Marrakesh in the past 15, 20 years. A riyad is a traditional house with a courtyard, typically found in historic cities across the country. The craft community has 
mostly been employed to reconstruct the same kinds of techniques in these hotels, right? So they're doing the nice zelij tile work that covers the, the courtyard spaces. They're coming in and doing this extraordinary carved stucco, which is really quite difficult to do and takes an extensive amount of training to be able to do right. Um, so that has been a huge part of their industry. It's it's a very slow process. It's, a, it's obviously, it's a handcraft, so you can't, it's hard to industrialize that, but it has really fed into the local economy there. And then they were also, they've also been employed on restoration efforts in broader, more global restoration economy. So a team from Morocco was employed to build the Moroccan court at the Met in New York. They lived in New York for nine months and carved the stucco in situ in the Met Gallery. And you've been really interested in these craftspeople and how they operate. Tell me about the kinds of places that they work and what it's like visiting one of their workshops. Visiting these workshops is incredible, primarily because they're almost all family run and rarely do they have storefronts. So all advertising for these workshops is primarily done word of mouth. And you may have a network of workshops in the city where the same project is being worked on, but everyone has divvied up materials and spaces based off what they have. I mean, it's very idiosyncratic, right? You may live above the workshop where you're actually putting this material together or doing the wood carving. And so you can only work on one piece at a time or you store it at one person's workshop and work on it at another person's workshop. Depending on the kind of craft that you're doing, uh, that sort of changes the kind of space that you might have. Part of Morocco's bid for Marrakesh's UNESCO status was based on these craft traditions being intangible cultural heritage, which the UN describes as knowledge or skills that are passed down orally rather than in written form. It's this cultural heritage that Nouradine Nashwan, Abi's colleague in Marrakesh, focuses on in his research. He comes from a family of artisans and knows their networks and ways of working well. I asked him what had happened to Marrakesh's artisans after September's earthquake. The artisans, like the majority of residents of the Medina, were deeply affected by the earthquake. Some who own damaged workshops have had to pause their work. Others have found temporary solutions, such as working from home or collaborating with their colleagues. The Moroccan government put together an aid programme aimed at restoring the daily lives of those affected by the earthquake. Nouradine says the artisans in the Medina are impatient for their workshops to be repaired under this programme. But he says that Morocco's artisans were already in the grip of a structural crisis well before the earthquake hit because of how heavily they rely on the tourist industry. They're vulnerable to the risks that affect the sector, such as pandemics, conflict, international crises, as well as more day-to-day -day issues, such as the rising price of raw materials and difficulties related to their supply chain and to commercialising their work. Artisans don't have any particular status under Moroccan law, and so often find themselves neglected or ignored when crises hit. Nouradine says it's unclear how many have been affected by the earthquake. An oversight, he says, is linked to a persistent lack of data about the sector, caused by an absence of legislation. But he says the construction skill sets of these artisans are particularly important in the old Medina, much of which was built using adobe, or pise, a heavy clay soil used to make reddish-coloured bricks. 
We pretend to respect these traditional construction methods, but it's not true because we've lost these old techniques, and so new interventions don't respect the nature of the old buildings. In recent years, there's been a lot of restoration in the old Medina, but Nouradine told me that after the recent earthquake, much of what was recently restored sustained a lot of damage. Because this restoration didn't respect the Medina's environment and traditional construction techniques. It's hard to imagine that a building which was restored in 2019 could be easily damaged. So it's fair to say that the restoration was ineffective. Two months after the earthquake, Nouradine says that Marrakesh has quickly recovered its grace and charm because of the hospitality and determination of the population. But he says a lot of work is still needed to fix the damage. Some of the most emblematic of Marrakesh's monuments, proof of its rich heritage, weren't spared by the earthquake. The Qutbiyya Minaret, the Al-Badiya Palace, the Al-Bahiya Palace all sustained important damage and need major restoration. Each intervention to restore the houses in the Medina must be carefully studied, he says, because of how densely packed they are in a close-knit series of alleyways. Any sudden movement can lead to collapse, cracks or compromise the very structure of these traditional buildings. It's essential to call in experts to lead these restoration works. But when I asked Nouradine if Marrakesh's traditional artisans are involved in the reconstruction of the Medina in the wake of the earthquake, he said, unfortunately not. And he thinks there are a number of reasons for this. First of all, the rarity of artisans specialising in traditional construction technique has become a major problem in recent years. This specific knowledge is starting to disappear, principally because of the modernization of the construction process and the lack of training programs to preserve these essential skills. Nouradine says that the Moroccan state tends to call on private companies for reconstruction projects, and they have their own employees who specialize in more modern reconstruction techniques. We must take steps to encourage training and preservation of this artisanal knowledge, while also fostering collaboration between private and public sectors to make sure that construction projects respect both traditional and modern standards. There's a sense of urgency to get Marrakesh and its old Medina back looking the way it has done for centuries. Here's Abby Stockstill again. There's been a real sort of campaign to encourage people to keep visiting, to keep coming to Marrakesh if you'd had a vacation planned or a trip planned. And that is helpful. That is sort of prompting restoration to be focused in Marrakesh, in the city itself, and to address the worst problems as quickly as possible. That is not the case in the Atlas. Things are, I think, much more dire there. We're getting to a point now where probably by next month or so, many of the roads will be impassable because of snow. And the last that I had heard, there were still swaths of communities living in tents in the Atlas. I just saw that there was a, a protest in the Atlas because people are still homeless. Then Marrakesh just held a big meeting of World Bank and IMF leaders saying it's all open for business. So there is a real disparity there, isn't there? Those two realities. There's a huge disparity, right? There's the sense in Marrakesh that we want to carry on, that we want to keep moving forward, keep pressing forward, pretending that everything is normal. And then there are these communities in the Atlas that are struggling. And as you say, they they don't have a home, they don't have a roof over their heads, and it gets really cold in the mountains in the winter. 
So the clock is running out to get them housed before really bad weather sets in. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks to the researchers Abby Stockstill and Nouradine Nashwan, and to our colleague Kalpana Jain at The Conversation in the US. We'll put a couple of links to articles that Abby wrote for The Conversation about the history of Morocco in the show notes. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was written and produced by me, Gemma Ware, and Katie Flood, with assistance from our producer, Mend Marawani. Mend also did the English voiceover for Nouradine Nashwan. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Saal. Stephen Khan is our global executive editor, Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. You can connect with us on Instagram at theconversation.com, on X, formerly known as Twitter, at TC underscore audio, or email us directly at podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and The Conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. And please do give us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really does help. Thank you for listening and we'll be back next week.